to go home. You on the Indianapolis? You know the thing about a shark? He's got lifeless eyes. Black eyes, like a doll's eyes. When he comes at you, doesn't seem to be living until he tries to. Hello, I'm Sarah Marshall. I have a podcast called You're Wrong About, and this is a new podcast I'm doing with my friend Alex Steed. Yeah, we're going to talk about dads. Hello, everybody. I am the Alex Steed Sarah mentioned. I have a podcast called National Demystified. I am so excited to co-host Why Are Dads with her. Like she said, we're going to dive into all things dad, particularly our and maybe your complex relationship with fathers by spending time with some of our favorite media and taking it in through the dad lens. We are not dads ourselves. We have known many dads. We were raised by dads and we're interested in dads. We want to talk about dads as a cultural institution, which is a really boring and stressful phrase. And so... We're exploring dads through movies, movies that we grew up with, movies that are painful to watch, movies that are joyful to watch, movies that are both. And of course, in trying to understand the dads in our lives, the good ones, the bad ones, crusty dads, sensitive dads, present ones, the absent ones, big dads, little dads, the shitty ones, the mean ones, the exceptional ones, whoever. All kinds of dads. We're going to try to better understand ourselves and you know, get to the bottom of who and how and why we are. Sometimes we'll have guests and sometimes we won't. Whenever we can, we'll try to incorporate original music from our friends and their interpretations of music from whatever it is we're discussing. Today, we talk about Jaws. Jaws, of course, is Steven Spielberg's wildly popular 1975 adaptation of Peter Benchley's 1974 novel, The film stars Roy Scheider as police chief Martin Brody, who has moved from New York City to the small beach town of Amity with his wife, Ellen, and their two sons. Richard Dreyfuss plays Matt Hooper, a wealthy and charming self-funded marine biologist, (laughs) which was evidently a thing, with an interest in sharks. And the great Robert Shaw stars as Quint, a veteran of the Second World War, in a colorful courier fisherman. When a shark begins killing residents of the tourist town, the surviving residents, many of whom depend on the tourist economy, are resistant to acknowledge how bad the situation before them really is. Brody, Hooper, and Quint eventually team up to confront the shark and each other out on the water. As Sarah and I discuss, the film is about at least one literal dad. Brody, and it's about other men who remind us of our respective dads sorting through their egos and masculinity while in pursuit of this shark. Okay, that's all the intro you need. Let's do this. This movie exists in your heart, but you revisited. It's my summer movie. Mm. And I actually think that I keep it as a summer movie so that it stays special. Like Jurassic Park, you can watch any time of year. Jaws is like, to me, so specifically 
attached to the experience of summer. And I, that reminds me of like, where did we go? There was a beach that you and I went to a couple of years ago where I was like, being here is telling me that summer is happening. Was it in Maine? I feel like it must have been Maine. Oh, yeah, it was. It was. Yeah, because the only other state <laughs> where we've hung out is Tennessee. Yes, no beaches. <laughs> this was a beachy beach with a boardwalk and like those T-shirts about how you hate your wife. Oh, it was it was Old Orchard Beach. <laughs> <Yeah>. Old Orchard <laughs> Beach. Yeah, that's all you needed to say. But yeah, I just I I feel watching Jaws feels to me like, you know, like going someplace like Old Orchard Beach. The iconic summer things are happening and also where the plot is so totally fused to the timeline of summer. And then we have, you know, all this explicit language about we can't have a panic on the 4th of July. Like we are in as we record this, like the the Jaws micro season, which right. I just always I'm aware of when it happens. I'm like, ooh, it's Jaws time again. And we're also in the Jaws macro season. It struck me that we have talked a lot about Trump's response to coronavirus in the context of the mayor from Jaws, but I, it's been it's been a while since I watched the movie, so I didn't fully realize that that's not the only parallel. It's like literally everything about this emergency and the way people respond to it. You know, people trying to preserve their their um, you know, economic prosperity mm. at at the uh, at the risk of everyone's lives around them. <laughs> I didn't realize that it's from top to bottom, actually. <laughs> A parallel. In, in when we talked about doing this, Jaws was obviously on the top of the list. And when we talked about doing the first, you had insisted up upon doing Jaws because it's July, but also because the vibes are strong. Can you can you t- say why that is for you? I mean, for me, it's just because. Jaws is a movie where the heroic figures in it are three men from kind of different worlds with different personality types who have to struggle how to collaborate and get along and then are able to do because they all are able to accept the reality of the shark and to care about stopping the shark more than they care about believing that there is no shark because it would be comforting believing that that other shark that the fisherman got is the shark and everything's fine now, uh, believing that the shark, that the money that people have to make off of the tourist economy is more important than the shark, which is like, that's an uncomfortable parallel to real life and also something that is uncomfortable to think about in the world of the movie because you're like you know yeah we need to confront this shark head on but like what do you do in a place that is a dependent on a tourist economy and that's something that the book goes into a lot more detail about because the book is a lot less fun (laughs) what made me want to watch this movie and feel like it would be a comforting experience is the fact that it's about characters like dealing with a problem Why are we doing a podcast about dads? I feel like our friendship, which is a decade old, is built on a foundation of old dads, <laughs> you know, and also a nightmare on Elm Street because our origin story is that we met on Tumblr because we were both fans of a nightmare on Elm Street. <laughs> like, I can't remember exactly why, but like, that was the main thing that I was talking about on Tumblr at the time. And you were like, yeah, this is, these are important films. And I was like, yes, (laughs) thank you. (laughs) 
So, so tying this to old dadism, um, I thought just for a second while watching the movie and had nothing to back this up, um, but I just had a feeling quickly as I was like, I bet Roy Schneider is exactly the same age as my father and he's within a year of the same age as my father. Huh. So so he was born in 32. My father was born in 31. My father's been been dead for 10 years. But I was just watching him and I was like, man, I this guy is a lot like my father, like a lot huh. like my father. Um, and and shared a lot of a lot of his traits, sort of a lot of his personality, um, um, not not similar people by any means, but certainly generationally similar. Mm. And and I'm so happy we kicked off with this as a result because I've never I've never watched Jaws and thought about the dad theme, huh. um, and it, it really sort of shaped my perspective on it. But it also helped me relate to it a lot more. That I was like, is it, this guy is a binary for my father. What what about him reminds you of your dad? Both his like aloofness and mm. and tenderness right is is yeah. there's a scene where hooper goes to the house to essentially announce that they the shark that they got was not the correct shark and they should go and sort of dissect the shark that they have mm. um and when he arrives he says i'd like to talk to your husband and his his wife says yeah me too <laughs> you know he he his, he has this kind of inability to connect he's shut off in a pretty major way and has these mm -hmm. like phobias he can't really deal with. But at the same time, he's has a really tender relationship with his youngest son, with both of his sons, really, mm -hmm. even though we only get minimal interactions, but we get this beautiful interaction where he interacts with his youngest son who is emulating him, uh, emulating yeah. all of his sort of moves and how he has his hands on his face. And he ends that interaction to his, with his son saying, give us a kiss and the son says, why? And he says, because I need it. And it's the only time in the entire movie that he reveals any actual vulnerability. Give us a kiss. Why? Because I need it. That's true. And that's something very much my father would do, is that, it, it, you know, he, he would never s express explicit vulnerability, but absolutely, when he dropped me off to school when I was a little kid, he'd make me mm -hmm. kiss him on the cheek, you know, uh, and, and which is lovely in retrospect, but at the time, it felt out of order with him just being a, a, a crusty yeah. man. Yeah, <laughs> I think that as, like, if you grow up with a crusty dad, you're like, maybe other people are never confused by this, but I definitely spent a lot of time confused and also feeling like there was cultural confusion over like, how can someone be like so crusty and also just like outright mean, like I had, I had and have a mean mm. dad. Um, and then like be suddenly so soft and so woundable and, you know, it takes potentially so long to figure out like, yeah, those two things go together like french bread is crusty because it's soft inside that's why you bake a crusty baguette if there were nothing to protect you wouldn't do that <laughs> right that's so good that's such a good way to put it yeah he's he's kind of all baguette uh in this in this movie and in context of other characters who we see he feels less surly because quint is just right next level crust went as classic surly yeah right. but but then we also get to his vulnerability which which we'll talk about so yeah. we have we have 
we have Brody, who's a New York City cop who relocated to to Amity, um, which you're saying is in Martha's. It's around Martha's. Well, vineyard. it was so the the location part is interesting. The movie was filmed on Martha's Vineyard, and then the book I believe was set on Long Island, like kind of near okay. Montauk. So it's got this sort of placelessness. And I was going to ask you if you consider it to be a New England movie because it's like not super explicitly set there i guess but like it's filmed there so yeah in the same way that i always assumed that beetlejuice was in maine even though it was right. in connecticut i assumed jaws was in massachusetts and it might it may it may not be but um, it just has that feel but i mean it you're literally seeing massachusetts summer people and massachusetts houses and it refers to boston a couple of times so i i i did sort of assume um, um but it, it feels it, like they're acknowledging the setting like so okay so he's relocated he's relocated his family from new york city where he felt like disaffected as a cop because he couldn't make a difference there and so he's super pensive his wife calls him up tight he's terrified of the water and he's never really been on a boat and then I wrote not a big talker <laughs> because this movie, this movie is almost Altman esque in its overlapping conversations. It is. And also there's a great book called Jaws log that goes into this. That was basically written by the screenwriter, Carl Gottlieb the summer that they were filming it. But one of the things he talks about um, is how the, the team making the movie basically invented looping. Oh, wow. For this movie. Yeah. Because they had so many scenes with all these, you know, all this overlapping dialogue and where you're hearing, you're listening to a crowd having a conversation and they couldn't just use recycled people saying peas and carrots because they, you know, it was too complicated and they wanted the stuff that you heard to be interesting. So and they pulled it off. Yeah, they invented looping for this movie. Hey, here's a quick note for those of you who are not abject movie-making nerds. Looping, which is otherwise known as ADR, additional dialogue replacement, is the process by which filmmakers work with actors to re-record audio that was imperfectly captured on set or to help create layered sound and dialogue that could not be captured in the initial production. So, 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 okay. So they invented looping. I mean, I feel like so much interesting sound stuff was happening in the seventies between that, that and what they were doing with like multi-tracking with Almond. It's crazy. The seventies feel like this amazing, like this adolescent time for American film. Like American film is like 13 years old and has like these big braces and these big zits and is like suddenly (laughs) like, you know, able to do all these like, you know, just developing Physically and all these magnificent and also ugly and unvarnished ways. Sure. Yeah. And everyone, and I, a thing I love about the movie that speaks to exactly what you just said is everyone is a little ugly, like conventionally. Yes. And I love well, that. Well, that's also why it feels like it's set in New England. Everyone yes. looks kind of like weathered, weather beaten yeah. and... and <laughs> yeah, no doubt. No doubt. And you, as a, as a, as a native New Englander who spent a lot of time in LA, I always say, you know, you know, especially if you're taking a, if you're taking a flight from LA or the West coast generally over to new England and you're making stops along the way, you just see people in- incrementally get more weathered until you get to new England <laughs> and everyone looks like an extra in Jaws. Like everyone is 
crusty. Look like a beautiful salt Ex shingled house exactly. on the sea. The, the patina is lovely. I mean, that's sort of a lovely thing about it. Everyone's a little sweaty like I am now, and and, and that's the case. And then, so that's that's an important distinction because I think the the most attractive person in the movie is the, is our next character, who is Hooper, who's the hmm. son of a rich family. It's kind of all we know. He's from from wealth. He's a marine biologist, like a self-financed marine biologist with an interest in sharks because of a trauma that he had when he was younger. And he's a scientist who's really frustrated that no one will listen to science. <laughs> yes. What a great character. <laughs> it is. It's it's perfect for, again, so it's perfect for this moment. He's our Fauci in this situation. Yes. And then we have... We have Quint, who's a World War II veteran. He was on the Indianap the Indianapolis, uh, which is kind of the, the center of the most famous monologue from the movie. He witnessed mm -hmm. 700 of his fellow soldiers get eaten in the water, which ultimately lays the groundwork for his trauma. We'll talk about that, that uh, everyone is kind of operating from. This movie is about traumatized men. This conversation they have about the in Indianapolis comes from this conversation that they're all having where they're literally comparing scars, which is, you know, yeah. such an on-the-nose Spielbergian metaphor. Um, 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 yeah, and, I love that. and then he also just like my favorite thing about him, uh, as soon as like Quint get really gets involved, the movie gets fun because that's kind of when it's a conversation <laughs> a, a, about manhood in one way or another. Huh. Um, and, yeah. and he, as far as I'm concerned, I mean, he gets involved when he announces himself at the town meeting, but he really gets involved when he announces here's to swimming with bow legged women. <laughs> yeah. And he just, he like, he sings all these like old ribald like sea shanties. Yes. And one of them, I think my single fondest Jaws memory is that I have dear friends who used to live uh, in, in Portland, Oregon, the Portland that I live in, who moved away uh, back to the East Coast where they were from one summer. And like the night before they left, we went to see Jaws in a just for one night summer re-release at a movie theater mm. in the suburbs and it was beautiful i remember saying goodbye to them the next day as they were about to you know as they were packing their car and getting ready to head off and being like how do i express this feeling and i expressed it by going farewell and adieu to <laughs> fair spanish ladies which is like one of quint's songs and it's like this thing that you hear echoing is the men are about to push off. I was also, I was looking at the times in the movie and I think it's like an hour and 15 minutes in, we've had this narrative of like, shark shows up, Brody's worried about the shark, no one listens, Hooper shows up, they try to warn people about the shark, no one listens, finally they take the shark seriously, Hooper, Brody, and Quint push off to go find the shark. And from then on, the movie is on the orca, on Quint's boat, and it's like, they're departing for the country of men. We yes. have Brody's wife saying carefully goodbye to him and him telling her to tell the boys that he's gone fishing. And then and she kind of, you know, just runs. She just like runs away as her husband is. And she's like, put him in the custody of the scary old man. You know, he's he's leaving his children. He's leaving his wife. He's kind of going off on this journey to the heart of masculinity or something like it's I love it. Farewell and adieu, you fair Spanish lady.
Hooper in the movie is played by Richard Dreyfus, and I think this was his breakout role. And he's a short, nerdy, t- disrespected by all the other men in the movie, nebbish character. And he's very endearing, and he seems kind of like a Steven Spielberg stand-in to me. Like, he looks exactly like Steven Spielberg looked in 1975. <laughs> I loved him. <laughs> And and he's undersized. Like, there's this wonderful story that Steven Spielberg, when he was a kid, he was, like, coming in second to last in a race. And, like, the kid behind him was intellectually disabled. And so, like, there became this chant, which you can't feel that angry about given the context, but where all these kids were cheering the kid in last place by going, beat Spielberg, beat Spielberg, beat Spielberg. And he did. And Steven Spielberg lost. And you're like, well... That was nice for that other kid, but <laughs> you know, I I don't know who originally said this, but I think some reviewer said that in the book, like you, it's hard not to root. Maybe Steven Spielberg said that when you read the book, it's hard not to root for the shark because the people are all so unlikable, and because the author clearly feels, you know, at best mild disdain for these characters that he's writing Mm. most of the time. And I feel like the Spielberg touch, I mean, this is similar to Jurassic Park, actually, how, like, the characters in the book of Jurassic Park are unlikable. Like, it's not as bad as Jaws, but, like, the the book is not very focused on, like, the journey to accepting the idea of fatherhood. Like, that's not one of its themes at all. I'm really interested in looking at what Steven Spielberg did do to make this a movie that, to me is so affecting and whose characters I am so invested in. What's interesting to me about sort of the way that it unfolds and also touches on sort of who, you know, whose concern has priority is they don't go after the shark until the dads are, are feel threatened. Hmm. The first death is a young anonymous woman. He's a summer girl. Right, and the, and the tension is kind of set up. And I, I used to think that this was explicitly about masculinity, and now I think it's more explicitly about, about responsibility and men, mm. men's sort of relationship to their idea of, of what their responsibility is. Mm-hmm. And and so so in an, an anonymous, quote, summer girl is killed by a shark. She would have been killed anyway, but she's also killed in the context that she's with a guy from Hartford who's too drunk to go swimming. What a New England story. That's like Chappaquiddick or something. Right, right, right. right. This wasp this wasp is ultimately kind of the res- responsible because he's so ineffectual for this woman's death. Yeah. Uh, like like Ted Kennedy. The, <laughs> the, the, the next death is... And Brody wants to do something, but is kind of immediately shown that he doesn't have the political cachet to do much yet. And he doesn't push against it because he kind of knows what's good for him by way of job security. The second death, Alex Kinner, the death of this young boy, a mother, um, uh, his mother is present for the death and she comes and while a bunch of fishermen are celebrating, thinking that they've gotten the shark that has gotten Alex Kintner and this this young woman, comes and kind of publicly humiliates Brody by by slapping him in the face and revealing to everyone, you know, what everyone already knows that he knew that there was a shark in the water. And yeah. then the third the third attack is out in the water when everyone when everyone is back at the beach because the mayor has insisted upon it. Brody's son 
well, is is put into shock because he has a very close call with the shark. And also later we find out from the mayor that he's kind of having a bit of a nervous breakdown himself because he finally has emotionally grasped the fact that with all of his pushing, he put his own kids at risk because his kids were on the beach. And then we enter this phase of the movie where they're finally allowed to go get the shark because the men are worried for their families. But but an anonymous woman dying doesn't matter, and and a woman who's very up who's so upset she's literally wearing mourning wear like we used to do. Yeah, and slapping the chief of police in the face. <laughs> so 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 okay. So yeah, we have this we have this first part of the movie where no one's taking it seriously. The first real encounter we have with a competent authority figure is with is quint's introduction yeah let's talk about that and so and so what we see happen is the town is having a meeting about this thing the town is being confronted with the reality that all their shops are going to be closed and their their economic well-being is going to be impeded upon by what's going on so you can hear a voice going they're talking about closing the beaches for 24 hours and someone goes, 24 hours is like three weeks. It's three weeks, yes. I, I noticed <laughs> that and thought that that was great. So so we have we have this argument that they're having, which is, again, the argument that the United States ha- had been having starting in March. And then Quint announces himself um, very dramatically by dragging his nails down the chalkboard and essentially says the thing that we should have been saying the entire time about the pandemic, which is, there's and by the way, there's a bounty out on the shark for $3,000 dollars and the the and quint essentially says this is a bad problem this shark is a killing machine it's going to get in the way of all of your businesses and it's going to keep killing um three thousand dollars i'll find it for ten thousand dollars i'll kill it for this is going to be very expensive but the exchange is you all won't be on welfare through the winter which is so remarkably on the nose about this moment that we're having now. And it's just a grown up man being like, Hey, uh, we have a real fucking problem and you guys aren't addressing it in a real way. Mm-hmm. <laughs> what is your take on that scene? I mean, I love that scene, obviously, because it's just so it's just so fun. He just like shows up, it's like scree. And he's like, I'll find him for three, but I'll catch him and kill him for ten. I'll catch this bird for you, but it ain't gonna be easy. Bad fish. You know, and he's like, he's eating a cracker the entire time, too. You wanna stay alive and ante up? You wanna play it cheap? Be on welfare the whole winter. Robert Shaw is just such a delight to me in this role. I feel like he was this, like, old, complex, sad, drunk, and he was given this this role where he could it just seems like he knew how to play that character and that there's a lot of him potentially in that character i don't want no volunteers i don't want no mates there's too many captains on this island and he also had a hand in writing the indianapolis speech because he was also a writer and oh wow yeah the that's the scene where we meet this character and we hear this sort of cacophony of voices and no one knowing what to do. And then he really shows up as a town elder, I think, also. Like, he has this kind of presence as someone who's, like, of the sea, he's of the island, but he's not accepted by society. Like, his knowledge scares people a little bit. You can tell that people recognize his authority because he's, like, the island shark hunter. There's also a lot more 
in the book about kind of the ugliness of the job that he does because there, there's this absolutely horrifying scene where they catch a smaller shark. They're out, you know, hunting the big shark and they get a smaller shark and Quint's like, oh, the tourists love this. I'll show you what I do for the tourists. Mm. And he cuts the shark open and, you know, throws some of its innards in the water and, and throws the shark back in the water and then shows how the shark will first eat itself and then summon a feeding frenzy of other sharks. Hmm. It's just like this nihilistic vision of like something eating itself, which is a very, you know, apt metaphor for the economics of the story. Um, but he's like, the tourists love this. And you're like, dang, Quint, people are terrible, aren't they? Right. <laughs> <laughs> and you're like, yeah, I, I bet they do. <laughs> Quint is set up for us as a character who knows what he knows, but is incomplete as a human. I think that Hooper is that too. And then Brody is someone who like doesn't have knowledge. Like he doesn't know anything and he's afraid of the water. You know, to me, the the argument the movie seems to be making is that like both of these experts need this regular man or this regular, you know, father and cop trying his best in order to do what they end up doing. Right. Yeah. And he's a, he's kind of a reconciliation, right? Is that the, the, the tension between Quint and Brody throughout the movie is that, you know, is that Quint is, you know, Quint's like a, a hardened man. He's a veteran and he keeps making fun of sort of this effect intellectual who's there, who is on the opposite end of the spectrum. But when everything fails in Quint's in with on Quint's arsenal, He's like, what do you have? You know, how do we use your tools? Yeah. And the and the interesting thing, I mean, Carolyn said, we were watching it this morning, and Carolyn said it was so astute and on the nose. It's admirable that this guy has made his life's work about addressing his trauma. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> and it's, it's true, right? And it's absolutely the truth. And it's such a great observation. It's true right up until his death. He dies by... They've essentially caught the shark as much as they can, right? They've stabbed it somehow and, and tied <laughs> tied these barrels to it so it can't go very far. It really becomes like old man and the shark-like at this point because they're just like hand-to-hand combat with the shark. It's essentially tied through suspension to the boat. And the problem with that yeah. is he's going full speed with this boat trying to pull the shark. And Hooper's like, I think you should slow down. And he's like, fuck you, Hooper. <laughs> He doesn't have to go full speed and you see that that's where his trauma is bested him, right? Mm. Like he's taken out, not he in, and, and, and ultimately he's eaten by the shark. I never thought of that before, but yeah, I think, yeah, that is it. His abilities, his, his seemingly up to that point, superhuman abilities are undermined by him giving into that trauma. He's going to yeah. pull the shark full speed and it ends up being his end. Right. And can we talk about his trauma? Can we talk about the Indianapolis speech? Yes, absolutely. This is a point where they're all finally getting along and drinking and hanging out and they start. Quint has been giving Hooper an incredibly hard time when I tell people if they want to know what my dad is like, they should watch the scenes in Jaws between Quint and Hooper. You're Hooper. like Hooper. I'm Hooper and Hooper can't do anything right. (laughs) Right, right. And and in this, they've, they've turned and they're having a bonding kind of tender moment where they're sharing and exchanging about their scars. Yeah. And they're quite drunk. Brody asks about 
one scar in particular, which it's revealed is a removed tattoo that exposes the Indianapolis, I think. I think it might be a removal of a tattoo to commemorate him being a soldier. We learned that Quint was on the USS Indianapolis, which I, which was a real ship that I had not heard of before Jaws, um, and whose legacy is now being carried partly by Jaws, which is interesting, and was <laughs> torpedoed by a Japanese submarine chief. <laughs> and, you know, the ship goes down, and all of these soldiers, hundreds and hundreds of soldiers are in the water, and they had just delivered the Hiroshima bomb is the other big part of the story. And so mm. you get this also the sense of um, of retribution, I think, a little bit in that, like that they have, you know, it's not just any ship, is it? Like they've they've taken part in this act of war and then they become prey for the sharks. Um, so it's interesting that, you know, there's other shark stories that that, that could have been, but it, it was a World War II and the sharks' stories. And it's just this long, beautiful monologue uh, where he describes just these days and nights spent in the water with all these other men slowly being picked off by sharks. He plays it so well. It's so, I was just watching Magnolia, which is another movie we have to do an episode about, and mm. that movie has like a 10-minute long monologue at the end by Jason Robards, who's playing a character who's dying of cancer. And, and I just, I love a monologue where a character just explains themselves, just lets it all hang out and, and truly lets someone in, in a very intimate way and lets the audience in, in a very intimate way. Um, and when that character is an old man who are characters who in media are often defined by their inability to describe anything mm. or talk about their emotional realities or their trauma at all, like, I feel like that's where Quint becomes, it's almost like a musical. I think one of the wonderful things about musicals is that we struggle so much as humans living in an, a mostly non-musical world to express ourselves in a way that will convey the emotional reality of what we're going through to the people in our lives, rather whether they're people that we're close to or just, you know, humans generally and musicals kind of allow everyone to have their say like you if you're watching West Side Story then like you're taken inside the heart and mind of these characters one by one and you get to experience what it's like to to be them and to feel what they're feeling um, because they're giving that to you in this very direct way through music and I almost feel like the the Indianapolis speech is is kind of like characters bursting into song you're like I would like to live in a world where it's believable that this incredibly mean old man who gets threatened by everything, who's threatened by Hooper existing, like will suddenly launch into this expository monologue about like why he is the way that he is. He's like, mm. by the way, boys, this is why I am the way that I am. <laughs> and we'll explain it so coherently and the trauma will be so bad that like you cannot help but to be like, oh, okay. <laughs> Of course you're like this. I get it now, which is just something that's the kind of complete communication that I think we don't really tend to get with our parents. Sometimes we do, but I think that it, you know, if you are going to understand the basis of someone's trauma and, and lashing out that deeply, 
you know, a lot of the time, like you're going to get that understanding over the course of like years and years, not like in a, in a couple of minutes. Right. And he has, you know, that, that, that line that I, I love about, you know, <laughs> the, the, how the shark has dead black eyes, like a doll's eyes. You know, when they look at you, they don't even seem to be living, mm-hmm. you know, and just the, the kind of, you know, he's looked into the abyss. Um, yeah. And just, and they have this, you know, this incredible moment of trauma bonding. And then in that Spielbergian way, like the shark stuff gets serious. Like it's almost like it was waiting for that to happen. Like the shark was like there, like with its little shark ear <laughs> to the bottom of the boat, like waiting for Quint to finish explaining his trauma. And then it's like, okay, they're a team now. They're ready for me. <laughs> I didn't think about the fact that that's part of why that scene is satisfying, right? Is you're getting mm. you're getting revelations about about trauma and why someone does what they do in a way where most of the life of a living parent you are rarely afforded the luxury of hearing. But in the context of what you just said where you hear that speech in such close proximity to his inevitable death, it reminds me of the fact that it's like as someone who took care of a parent while he was sick and, and ultimately died. You hear all those truths. If, you, if you're if you're lucky, and your parent kind of knows that they're on death's door, which which my father certainly did, and it seems like maybe Quint knows a little bit in this case. They will start to be vulnerable about their truths, or you hear mm. that a lot when when parents are are close in that way, and and it, and I think because I've had that experience, I have. I haven't thought about it through the lens that you're talking about, which is before that, um, I never heard any of that shit from my father. I heard all these tiny glimmers, you know, like w- w- watching watching um, the History Channel and, and a, you know, a, seeing his eyes get misty about particular conflict or whatever. But I never mm. heard my dad's Indianapolis speeches until the very, very end. Mm. And it it seems like Quint knew. You know, Quinn knows they're not going to make it out. Yeah. And you feel like he needs to die at the hands of a shark. Like, that seems to be a need that he has and a need the story has. And then also, you know, I think it's it speaks to how you have these difficult father figures and these moments of bonding are possible. But then even with that, it's like so... When you're not feeling drunk and vulnerable, are you still going to be mean to me all the time? Because I don't mm. want to deal with that. And how, like, having a lasting relationship is so much more difficult uh, in some ways than, than having these moments of, of intense connection when circumstances force people to get real. Like, being honest and vulnerable in daily life is, like, you know, something that maybe Quint wasn't, <laughs> wasn't up to. <laughs> right, exactly. Was only capable of being vulnerable again when he realized the inevitability before him, which I feel like is a trap a lot of us feel about our parents. Mm, right. We'll be at peace with them when they're dead. God, it's almost like the idea of like the special time of having a baby where like they're doing so much and they're they're learning so quickly and it's you just want to be with them every day. Like I feel like accompanying someone into death there is that similar sense of like, you need to be there. Like you need to experience this precious time, not just because it's all going to be over soon, but because they're going through potentially this, the stage of development. If they have the the presence of mind and, and, you know, not too much pain to be kind of assessing what their life has been about. Right. 
Yeah, welcome to our podcast, where the only time you can find peace with some of your parents is when they're dead. <laughs> <laughs> welcome to the dad show. <laughs> I mean, my relationship with my dad currently is, you know, he's he's 76 years old, um, and he's he loves to talk about how he's going to be dead soon, but he mm. also doesn't really believe in the concept of his own infirmity, and he's not vulnerability is still not an option for him. Like he's getting increasingly old and frail and, you know, is, is pushing 80 with an increasingly short stick, but like that's still not enough for him to, you know, to open up if that's ever going to happen. Like he's going to have to be truly like looking the shark in the face. There's a difference between knowing that inevitability, weaponizing it and lording it over the people around you and, and actually and actually looking into the abyss and feeling small. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> yes, I feel like he's in the stage of telling everyone, you know, being mean to people and then being like, there's a shark and it could get me at any time. And it's like, I have been hearing about this shark for my entire life and we're still all here. So. <laughs> Show me the way to go home. I'm tired and I want to go to bed. I had a little drink about an hour ago. And it's gotten right to my head. Forever I will roam. By land or sea or phone. You will always hear me singing this song. Show me the way to go home. Show me the way to go home. I'm tired and I wanna go to bed. I had a little drink by an hour ago and went straight to my head. Whatever I will run, by land or sea or phone. You can always hear me singing this song. Well, we should say how it ends. So if people don't know, they are relieved. Um, They do get the shark. The shark gets Quint. And then Hooper and Brody get the shark. And uh, Brody is able... And they do it through kind of a combination of old and new means, which is nice. They have Quint's barrels and they have Hooper's oxygen tanks. And they are able to write an ending where in a way that is like probably not super accurate, but very narratively satisfying. <laughs> Brody says, smile, you son of a bitch and shoots the shark. And the shark is like, has an oxygen tank and the shark explodes. And then Hooper and Brody swim back to shore with no trouble at all. Cause I guess they're not that far out anymore and it's going to be okay. a movie about how I think emotional intimacy allows us to become greater than the sum of our parts. I think Jaws is a movie about friendship and how these three incomplete men are able to form this complete task force by hazarding this intimacy with each other.
Rhodey is very obviously the father in this movie, but who is the daddy? Oh, hmm. Well, I mean, I think Quint is the obvious answer. Um, but I think Brody actually is. I think that Brody has quiet authority and Quint is really like sort of a flailing drunk uncle. So if you have a summer romance with Quint, he's going to throw up on or near you at some point. It's just going to happen. Y- yeah, you're going to have a moment where you're like, oh, I don't know. No, no, thank you. Hooper's a fuckboy. <laughs> Hooper's a fuckboy. <laughs> You want to have you want to have a finite amount of time with Hooper. You want to like meet Hooper in the bar, get Hooper drunk, not in a sinister way, but just so he talks more slowly, and then mm, yes, you know, and then take him home, and then you would have like a nice fumbling experience, and then in the morning you would be slightly hungover and be like, "This is too much, too much talking." <laughs> I think I've had a crush on Roy Scheider since I was like twelve years old. Oh, definitely. <laughs> I've always I've always found him extraordinarily yes, attractive yeah. since I was a little kid. Brody um is a man that you could spend your whole life trying to figure out what he's thinking about and never know. And that's a daddy. And he also looks like he could he could do some spanking. Yeah. <laughs> Chief Brody, you are uptight. Yes. Come on. Quick note, Lee Fierro, the actress who played Alex Kintner's mom, a character who delivers to government officials a reality check about the literally fatal consequences of their inaction in the face of a public health and safety crisis, died of coronavirus in Aurora, Ohio, assisted living facility in May of this year. She was 91. For years, Fierro was a staple in Martha's Vineyard and a beloved proponent of the dramatic arts there. Rest well, Miss Fiero. Please join us next time when we will be joined by our great friend Candace Hopper for a conversation rich in Jerry Orbach. We will be discussing dads in the context of dirty dancing. We were so fortunate to have production help from Mary Dew and additional production support from Carolyn Kendrick. We also had original music by that same Carolyn Kendrick. And we also had some wonderful additional music from Mozart Nunez, otherwise known as Mozart 212. Check him out. Check out Carolyn. Uh, And uh, that's it.